turn there with me. If you're uh, new to church and you want to grab one of those red Bibles nearby, it's on page 1182 or 1183. Colossians 1. And before we read God's word together, let's pray. Lord, it was said of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And as a result of doing so, many therefore believed. Lord, please would you help us today to receive your word to receive it with eagerness and to examine it to see if it's true and if it is to bank our all in it for your sake and for your glory in Jesus name. Amen. So let's continue in reading Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. The Apostle Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking, still lacking, in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Amen. This is God's words. Well, J.M. Barry captured everyone's imaginations with his childhood classic, uh, children's classic, Peter Pan. Peter is the boy who never grew up. The boy who chose not to make the transition from childhood to adulthood and happily encouraged others to do the same. And ever since Peter was introduced to the world, people have almost romanticised this notion of never-ending childhood. They've talked about it and really just made it out to be something a lot better than it actually would be. Because the reality of not growing up is, is actually pretty ridiculous. And even the conclusion of the book, Peter Pan, tells us that. Never growing up is unrealistic. And there's an element of tragedy in this alternative of just being, well, a kid. 
It's not very nice. Can you imagine what dinner time would look like? You know, there you are, just tucking into your lasagna, surrounded by all these other people in their 30s and 40s and 50s, and imagine just, you just go, Ugh! and you drop it on the floor, like children do. Well, that's what my children do. Anyway. Well, it, we really, would, would, would we really like to abandon adulthood and act like children all the time? No, of course we wouldn't. And stop nudging your spouse, if you are, uh, just in case. It, was, it, it would be awful. However, it does seem like there is one group of people in society who are refusing to make this transition from childhood to adulthood, or at least pretending to do so. And sociologists have actually invented new names for this group of people. They're called kidults, or adultescents. And according to the Cambridge Dictionary, these are young men with interests traditionally seen as suitable for children. Now, most kidults are, are in their 20s and 30s, some are in their 40s, and sociologists are claiming that these guys are just enjoying prolonging their adolescence. They're less concerned with life in the real world, like getting a real job and finding financial independence and social independence. They prefer the virtual reality provided by computer games through which they live out their fantasy of being some kind of black ops sniper or a football manager. They are, as one commentator says, Peter Pans who shave. Now, I have to tell you this story. On my home, I like to listen to TalkSport on my way home at times uh, from the office, and I was listening to it a few weeks ago at the release of this. They had a phone-in to mark the release of the new Football Manager 2016 game. And they basically said, phone in, phone in with all your funny stories of what, what, how addicted you got to this game and how it really changed your life. And it was ridiculous. You know, I was expecting, you know, 17, 18 year olds before. And there were like men in their 30s and 40s phoning in and saying, one man, there was one classic, one guy phoned in and admitted to doing post-match interviews with himself in his bedroom mirror. I was like, he was 41. You know, another man in his late 20s was actually asked by his mother one day, he said, how are you doing, son? And he said, well, I'm a bit stressed, things aren't going well, my strikers aren't performing, and I think I'm getting the sack. To which his mother replied, no, no, son, I mean the real world. <laughs> it's tragic, isn't it? Tragic. That's not how it's meant to be. Now, most of us would admit to having some kind of lingering immaturities. We act childishly at times. We giggle at things we probably ought not to giggle at. Now that's occasionally good for a laugh, but nobody thinks it's a good idea to be like this all the time. In fact, in the book Peter Pan, Wendy was right, not Peter. We need to leave our Neverlands and grow up to be what we ought to be. Now the same thing can be said of Christians. The same thing can be said of those who are called to follow Christ. And the Bible uses this idea of growing up and maturing to describe how believers, like us, ought to develop. So when we become Christians, we're like newborns enjoying spiritual milk. But as we grow, we progress onto solid food. And again and again, we find that God wants us to grow and mature in our faith to become what we ought to be. In Peter Pan, Wendy says, children grow up under the instruction of their fathers and mothers well, in the Bible, God says that believers mature under the instruction of faithful ministers. God's called and commissioned 
servants. This is what we see in our passage today. And it's a valuable insight for us, really, into ministry. And I want you to realize it's not just a sermon for me or for Paul or for Matt or for the pastors in training. It's for, it's for all of us. It's, it's written, this letter, as Martin said earlier, is actually written to a church so that they can understand what they should expect from those who are called to teach. What's in the job description, what their manner should be, etc. Because there is this threat, as we'll see later on in chapter 2, of people coming and preaching these hollow and deceptive philosophies. But they're being duped by them. So he's saying, let me give you the job description, let me put you, let me put you at ease, let me make it really clear for you so that you'll not be deceived. And the more I read this passage, the more I thought, actually, Paul is writing out his own job description here, so I've decided to shape this sermon really in the form of a job description. There are four main parts to it. One, job title. Two, main duties. Three, key performance indicators. And four, other requirements. Number one, job title. We see this in verse 25. I have become the church's servant... By the commission God gave me. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Now Paul, it has to be said, is a very special servant. One of very few apostles. Apostles are those who have, been, um, who have, verbally, have verbally heard Jesus instruct them. And visually seen him for themselves. They are personally commissioned by Jesus to do his special work. But in this passage, Paul is not talking solely about his apostleship. He's moving easily in this passage to, from using the I have become the church's servant to we proclaim him. And he's not just talking about the apostles. If you look back with me into chapter 1 and verse 7, he's talked about Epaphras, who is a dear fellow servant. Same word, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. In other words, he's your local church pastor. And Paul is saying, this is what we do. We proclaim him. Now, why is Paul telling the Colossian believers this? It's because he wants them to know that in God's grand plan, according to his wisdom, he has seen fit to make his people mature by commissioning servants who will serve the church. Servants who will Declare the word of God and love the people of God. Now this doesn't mean, since the church is servants, that the church sets the agenda or dictates the job description. No, we see in this text that God does that. In verse 25, Paul outlines the, the primary duties of a pastor. And I think there are two things really present in this text in terms of the main duties. The first is to present the word of God in its fullness. If you see in verse 25, I've become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So the first thing that a servant of the Lord, a minister if you like, should do is to make the word of God known. Now what is the word of God exactly in this passage? We can automatically think, well it's the Bible that he's talking about. But Paul tells us what he's talking about in the following verses. The first thing that he tells us is this word of God is a mystery. It's something that was for ages and generations hidden, but it's not anymore. It's been revealed. 
Now, Apple like to do this, don't they, as a retailer with their products. News filters out that there's a new iPhone or a bigger iPad or something coming out. And people are wondering, oh, what will it be like? It's this massive secret. And, you know, techie magazines are, are busy trying to predict exactly what it's going to be like. Well, they don't know. It's a big secret. Until that is this grand unveiling, a big presentation, then everybody knows. Well, God has done his own grand unveiling of the greatest release ever, the greatest news ever concerning his son. It is this mystery of how God would reconcile all things to himself, of how God would undo all of the effects of the fall and the impact that it has on us. It's the mystery of how God's, unveiling the mystery of how God would include even the Gentiles, people who were not in the original plan that was promised to his Old Testament people, Israel. It's all revealed. It's a mystery that's now revealed. Wonder no more, word is out. Paul tells us what it is. Do you see it? It is, verse 27, Christ in you. The hope of glory. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Paul has given this stunning description of Jesus already in chapter uh, in verses fifteen to twenty-three. Jesus, who is the Lord of creation, and Jesus, who is the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of creation, the one through whom all things were made. Lord of the church, the one through whom all things have been reconciled. And because of who Jesus is as the image and the fullness of God. And because of what he's done in shedding his blood and making peace for us with God through his body on the cross, Jesus then has this awesome double supremacy. There is no one who tops Jesus, no one who compares with Jesus. And he lives in you. He lives in his people. Isn't that incredible? He lives in us as Gentiles, people who were strangers to the promises of God, people who were totally undeserving of his love and his grace. And he lives in us, people who were enemies of his because of our sinful behavior. Now this is what God calls and commissions his servants of the church to proclaim. Jesus, to present the word of God fully. Why? Because nothing is more important in our pursuit of Christian maturity than a clear, true vision of the glory of Jesus. Nothing. The poorer our vision of Christ, the poorer our discipleship will be. The greater and richer our vision of Christ, the richer our growth in the gospel will be. I want to show you this diagram. Maybe this will help you understand it, uh, how this works. Uh, You'll see along this timeline here that there is this point of conversion. There's a moment when we are converted. We repent and we believe the good news. And from that point on, if we want to really grow in the gospel, then we need to really grow in a couple of ways, three ways really. Uh, First of all, in our awareness of Christ's majesty. That's what Colossians 1, 15 to 23 is all about. That's what, it's, that's what Paul is trying to work in us. An awareness of the majesty of Christ as the Lord of all, uh, all creation and as the Lord of the church. That's the top line. 
And in our, we also ought to grow in our awareness of our sinfulness. That's the bottom line. When you become so aware of God's holiness and his greatness, it has an impact on you, doesn't it? You see yourself for who you really are when you behold him for who he really is. It's John Calvin who said, Man is never sufficiently touched with an awareness of his own lowly state until he has first compared himself with God's majesty. How utterly true that is. When we behold the greatness and the majesty of Jesus, we just think, who are we to try and sit in the thrones of our own hearts? We are sinful people. Now, in this, as we have a growing awareness of Christ's majesty and a growing awareness of our sinfulness, this is the very thing that makes the gospel great to us. We have an increasing awareness of the significance in the cross. So as you grow in your understanding of who Christ is in all his glory, and as you grow in your understanding of your sinfulness, you grow in this massive appreciation of the fact that on the cross, he has made it possible for you, sinful person, to know him, the holy God. Do you see what I mean? Does that make sense? I hope it does. For it's only when we grasp his majesty that we understand this. Only when we grasp our sinfulness, we understand the cross. And it's as we grasp the wonder of this holiness and his sacrifice on the cross that we just see how worthy he is of our wholehearted allegiance. Of how treasured he ought to be in our lives. And how much he's done to help us know him, become like him, and one day be with him. And that's what the hope of glory bit is about. This is the Christ who is in us. The majestic, glorious God. In us. Sinful people. Whom he has redeemed and rescued. As we saw earlier in Colossians. And he has given us this hope of glory. Now glory... Glory is the best word available to us that describes the sum attributes of the, of the character of Jesus. Glory covers his perfect holiness, his perfect love, perfect humility, grace, his power, his wisdom, all of that. And Romans 3.23 tells us that, that every single one of us has fallen short of that glory, that standard. There is no one righteous, not even one, no one gets anywhere close to that glory. But the word of God that is preached declares to us that there is a future glory, a hope that is held up in heaven for us. And that helps people like us, Christians, persevere and press on. As 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, that is Adam, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven, Jesus We will know his glory, see his glory, be like him as he is. But this glory, even though it's something that is future in heaven, it's not something that we need to wait for. It's something that God calls us and helps us to work towards even now. This is what helps us strive to be more like Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing, what's the word? Glory. Glory, which comes from the Lord. The basic gist of this is that we should expect the servants of the church who are commissioned by God to preach Christ To preach the fullness of the word of God that is about Christ. So that we might grow in our awareness of his majesty. 
that we might grow in our allegiance to him, given all that he has done for us. We should grow in our love for him, given that as we look at the cross, we see how much he has loved us. And a simple application of this should be that you should expect to hear Christ preached in every sermon. Whether we're preaching from the Old Testament that points forward to and promises Christ, or the New Testament that shows you who he is and explains what he has done, we should preach Christ. No church member should ever hear a Christless sermon. Indeed, Spurgeon said, if a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ, it ought to be his last. We proclaim him. Him. Jesus, our glorious saviour. But what we should also understand is that this is a primary means by which God's people in local churches grow. Through the declaration, the preaching of the word of God, whether it's from a pulpit actually or whether it's been shared in your home one-to-one. Now that should shape then our attendance, that we should make every effort to hear the word of God when it is preached, given that God works through it. And it should shape our attentiveness. We should really listen. And listen with a view to finding out what God would have us understand and change. And if we really understand that God is powerfully at work in the preaching of his word, then we'll take care how we listen, as Jesus said in Luke. We won't worry about, did I say, even the manner of delivery or the absence of a tie. We'll be like, right, pastor, encourage my heart. Let's hear it. Give me Jesus. That's what it's about. And preach it faithfully. Don't start flooding it all with your fancy stories. Just give me Jesus. Set forth the truth plainly, is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. That's how we commend ourselves to every man's conscience. Not by peddling the word of God in an entertaining fashion. So the first thing that God wants his servants to do is to present this word of God in its fullness. To get to Jesus. To talk about Jesus all the time. The second thing, a servant of God, a minister, is to present the people of God mature in Christ. Or you could say, make the people of God grow. Look with me at verse 28. Him we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now, this making the people of God grow as we present the word of God in its fullness involves two things according to the Apostle Paul here. It involves admonishment and teaching. Now, admonishing. The preaching of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and presenting the word of God in its fullness involves warning. It includes correction. And it includes rebuke. And this aspect of ministry really can't be ignored for the same reasons that in parenting, correcting and rebuking of children can't be ignored. That's a dangerous thing for them. Either they stray into some danger that they should be warned about, or else they, they grow up to be total brats. Kidults. Uh, well, the same is true for ministry. People, uh, Paul didn't shrink back from this aspect of his job description because he knew that even correction was formative 
and helpful for his people. Uh, I'm sure you can look back to many times in your own life when, a, when a, a faithful brother or sister has spoken a word of warning in love who very carefully cautioned you against a set, certain pattern of living or a certain type of choice that you're making. And you've, really, you've not only appreciated the love that they demonstrated in that event, but you've learned a lot through that wisdom being shared with you. I certainly have. And we must, Paul, Paul, ministers of the gospel, must not shrink from this aspect of the job description. Not when the gospel is at stake. Not when the lives of God's people are at stake. For it shouldn't surprise us to hear pastors say to us, whether we're in our homes or from the pulpit, what you're doing, brother or sister, is wrong. You need to repent. You're bringing the name of Jesus into disrepute and you're not walking in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So be conscious of the fact that according to the Apostle Paul, admonishing the church that a servant serves is a key aspect of that ministry. But so is teaching. Uh, So the preaching of Christ in you, the hope of glory, involves not just that warning but the formative instruction. Now, Paul didn't shrink from this either. Uh, Matt is preaching on Acts 20 tonight, and in that passage we hear Paul say to the Ephesians, I have not hesitated to preach to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I'm not going to leave anything out at all. Which means that we should expect the ministers of God, uh, the ministers that God calls to this church, to devote themselves to knowing better, understanding more, and teaching better the word of God. And you should know that all the ministers in this church are far from being the finished article. They know their weaknesses keenly. So maybe you can encourage them in this thing of teaching. Maybe you can share how the word of God is encouraging you. Of something that God has used to shape something of what's happening in your life just now of how it helped you say no to temptation and yes to Jesus Uh, these are great encouragements for those who teach now neither aspect of this ministry of admonishing people or teaching people can be ignored this is for in fact they have to be They're to be carried out for everyone's benefit. Did you see that in the text? This is for everyone. We want to present everyone perfect in Christ. Fancy that job description? That's a toughie, isn't it? That is a toughie. Now we're to admonish and teach all of those who are committed to life together in Christ in this church family. And with a desperation and a desire to see you grow. To see you grow in Christ's likeness. We long to talk with more of you. To know you better. We long to continue preaching faithfully. And have you encourage us to do this. But even in a church this size. It is very hard. And this is one of the reasons why of course we have growth groups. This is why we are entrusting to reliable men. The opportunity to lead groups like this. And almost be an extension of the elders teaching in the life of this church and to encourage you in that respect so we should be a part of one 
Now, if that shows us the job description, the main duties of making the word of God known in order to make the people of God grow, then what should be the results? What are the kind of things that we really want to see? What should pastors want to see in the lives of those in their church? What should members of the church hope to see in their own lives? Well, this is where we move on to the key performance indicators, isn't it? So Paul expects to see a great outcome in the lives of those he ministers to. What should we expect to see when servants of God give themselves to this ministry? Well, chapter 2 and verse 2, actually 2 to 5, give us an idea of these things. What we'll see is a greater motivation. You see this? Paul says, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart. That is the church, encouraged in heart. This is what happens when Christ is preached. The church is spurred on towards deeper faith, deeper maturity, greater resolve, more good deeds, an urgency in mission. And all of these as a result of coming to know either some great aspect of God's character and how he moves towards us or some aspect of God's instruction and how we are to demonstrate our love for him even in our obedience. And even the fact that When we trip up and fall and stumble into sin, which we may call a besetting sin, his grace is sufficient for us for our forgiveness when we trust in that cross. Well, this is what spurs us on. There's greater motivation. We can be encouraged in heart. So we should see that kind of thing in our members. And also greater love. My purpose, verse 2, is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. The gospel, without question, brings us together. We've said this again and again from this pulpit, that the gospel not only unites us to Christ, it unites us to each other as we are in Christ. We are his body. We are his family, his building, his temple. And the gospel brings us together. And what Paul is saying here is that when we know Jesus better, and progress towards maturity in Christ, becoming more and more like him, we, we change in terms of our relationships. Knowing Christ creates better relationships. We're more loving. We're more inclined to put to death our old selfish selves, and we're more likely to be humble where we serve one another in love. The other thing that he points out in this text is that we have a greater confidence in the gospel. Verse 2 again. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love. Well, the NIV here says so that, but it could also be translated to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. So in other words, you'll come to understand just how precious this gospel is when you hear it taught faithfully and when you treasure Christ as a result. And when you do this, when you receive the word of God in its fullness, when you grow in your understanding of Christ and your understanding of your sinfulness and your understanding of the cross and its significance in life, you'll have greater confidence in the word of God, in the promises of God, and you'll have no problem banking your life on it. You'll have no problem in taking God at his word and doing it because you will trust him to come good on his promises. And lastly, we see that in verse 4, we'll have greater discernment. We're going to get into this a lot in Colossians in the, in the, in the next chapter, well, in chapter, the rest of chapter 2. 
It's a big problem for them here. Uh, but it's also a problem for us too, where there are other philosophies, other, other lifestyles that are really deceptive. And they often sound enticing. They are sometimes articulated with fine-sounding arguments, but they're dead ends. They will not give you the hope of glory that Christ gives. And as we recognize these dead ends, these teachings, uh, we devote ourselves to knowing the true gospel. And in fact, a deeper knowledge of this true gospel is the very thing that helps us identify these things. Studying the real thing is what protects you from the deception of the counterfeits that try to drag us away from Christ. So we should be encouraging one another towards achieving these things in our lives. Trusting that God's word, when it's preached, when Christ is held up, produces mature believers who will grow in these ways. Greater motivation, greater love, greater confidence, greater discernment. <laughs> Lastly, I want to turn to other requirements. Other requirements. Paul is really quite straightforward here in this passage. Uh, he has no shame in highlighting uh, the fact that the ministers of God are called to suffer and struggle. Look with me, verse 24, first of all. I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. So the first thing that Paul highlights here is that actually being a servant of God involves suffering. For Paul, that was very clear. Uh, he has faced many trials, even up to this point of where he's writing this letter to the Colossians. He has faced um, beating, stoning, rejection. He's been driven out of cities. He'll end up being shipwrecked. You know, he's been through a lot of rejection. And he has suffered way more than, than any of us have suffered. And suffered more than even some of those who are in difficult situations across the world and um, in closed countries where persecution is rife. He struggled more than that. But being a servant of the church involves suffering. Paul doesn't really view this as a problem. It is remarkable, actually, that he, he doesn't see it as a problem. Paul doesn't say, you know, if you're Lord of all creation, why don't you take this away? No, he knows that God has actually planned to use the suffering of his servants to point to the suffering of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul even goes as far to say in this text that he sees himself as somehow completing the afflictions of Christ. Now, that is a strange verse, isn't it? It's a strange way to put it. What exactly does Paul mean when he says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions? Well, when we think something is lacking something, we generally think it's deficient or something's missing. Is Paul actually saying that the cross of Christ is somehow deficient and it's the job of the servants of the gospel to somehow kind of complete that? 
you know, to top it up and make it right. No, that is not at all what he's saying. The sufferings of Christ are not deficient. Jesus himself said, as he breathed his last breath, it is finished. And in fact, to argue that that's the case would go against everything else that we see in the New Testament. And what Paul has already said, uh, even in Colossians chapter 1, concerning this transfer that's taken place of us from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, regarding our rescue and redemption. No, that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that God has a plan to make even the sufferings of Christ known to the world through the sufferings and the hardships of his servants. It is in some sense that as the world sees his Christ's servants suffer, that they see him. And his sufferings are then, in a sense, filled up in our sufferings because of, in our sufferings, the world sees Christ. That's how it has its full effect. Now, suffering is not the only word that's used here. Paul also describes some of the other requirements in terms of, of labor and toil and struggle. Um, so labor's Really, the word like a farmer. It's like, a, like back-breaking work. Uh, to struggle is, really, is the word that was used back then for, for wrestling, actually. It's strenuous work. John Stott says, Both images conjure up pictures of rippling muscles enduring and, uh, and dripping sweat. What a picture. You'll never look at Paul, Matt and I in the same way ever again. But it's not just suffering. It's not just the hardship of it. The hardship of it really for us is, is nothing compared to the hardships and the difficulties that persecuted brothers across the world face. Nothing compared to the struggles and the suffering that Paul himself faced. Though I can be honest with you and say that at times it is a toil. I remember reading of one um, of, of George Whitfield who was said to have woken up in the middle of the night with the weight of souls on his mind and at three o'clock in the morning got out to the side of his bed and prayed and the person he was traveling with and sharing a room with him got up and said, what are you doing? And his, his response was, it is too much. It is too much. And we feel a great responsibility. It is a weighty thing. And it's hard work. Is it any harder than the work that you do? Probably not. Though I think we feel the weight of the eternal significance and the teaching of God's word. Yet though it's hard for God's servants at times, it is by no means lacking joy. In fact, Paul bookends this section with joy. I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And then in verse 5, I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm in your, fa- your faith in Christ is. It is a joy to be a servant of the gospel, a servant of the church. I personally can't think of a better way to spend my life. It is no, in no way a chore to serve the church. Uh, I, I Appreciate what Paul says when he says elsewhere, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. 
but there are a couple of things that make it really joyful for us. One being the fact that God provides the energy we need to do all that he's called us to do. It's his work. It's done in his strength. None of us would have any energy to do the kind of things that we do. The other aspect, of course, that brings great joy is seeing the people you serve grow. Verse 5, I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Paul's basically saying to the Colossians, you're doing well. And actually, that just brings me such joy. It is so good to hear from Epaphras just how you are walking in the faith. And I rejoice at that. So there you have your job description of a pastor. And what is our hope then, having walked through all of that? Well, it's not that you would be spiritual, Peter Pans. Kidults who prolong their adolescence, spiritual adolescence. Our hope is that you will grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. To know that that is our prayer. That those that God has commissioned to serve in this way, even here in Charlotte Chapel, will, by God's grace and with his help, strive to present to you the word of God in its fullness, Christ in you, the hope of glory, in order that we may present you, even before God, mature in Christ as our joy. My encouragement for all of us is to desire this maturity and this growth together and to make it a real priority. Not only so that our lives may be changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus, that's brilliant, but so that more people may come to meet Jesus through us and that God ultimately be glorified. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, for this insight into his ministry and the ministry of your servants. Our prayer is that you would take and use what we see and what we've understood from this text today and be those who leave behind our spiritual neverlands and pursue true maturity. We want to become like Jesus. We want to have a greater understanding of who he is and the a greater knowledge of how the gospel impacts our lives and shapes our lives. We want to be changed. And we pray that you would not only equip us either as ministers or as members, but that you would even multiply the number of ministers and members even through this congregation. That we would see many more people come to faith in Jesus Christ by repenting of their sins and trusting in him. And we pray that you would send out many more from this congregation who will like, likewise become your servants, servants of the church, proclaiming Christ and making your people mature. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.